Thanks for listening. And if you'd like to support my work, you can use PayPal or the Venmo is DharmaPunksNYC. DharmaPunks with an X. What we call habits, addictions, compulsions, they're all essentially behavioral impulses that are initiated by pre-conscious regions of the brain. Before we have conscious thought in a certain set of circumstances, action potential that gets us ready or urges us to take an action or do something, the inclination to proceed in a behavior occurs even before thought that that's something that we want to do. Uh, Benjamin Labet, great um, uh, neurologist, quite a number of years ago showed that uh, behavioral impulses can take as little as a tenth of a second, whereas conscious reaction to external stimuli takes about a half a second. And to be sure, regions of the brain responsible for the initiation of our addictions, our habits, our routines are subcortical. They involve two regions that are very influential, the striatum, which initiates are repetitive behaviors, the caudate nucleus as well, which is involved in the repetitive thoughts that can arise. And they're reinforced by another region, the ventral tegmental, which activates dopamine rewards that motivate addictive behaviors. They are very, very powerful, influential. Uh, habits are consistent behaviors, which means, you know, if somebody um, feels the urge to do a habit, it will largely, or a routine, it will largely take the same, same form uh, over and over and over again. And it's generally triggered by external stimuli, certain situations. Let's give some examples uh when we're lonely we come home at night some people might feel the moment they feel a sense of isolation or loneliness they might feel an urge to binge eat they might go down to the store and buy lots of ice cream or they might immediately find themselves reaching to turn on netflix or to go on social media uh, if someone feels hungry, they might immediately, uh, instead of looking towards healthy foods, they might go to fast food. If someone feels stressed, they might feel the urge to smoke. If someone feels unmotivated, uh, uninspired, they might feel an impulse suddenly to shop on Amazon or uh, somewhere online. If someone's bored, once again, they might feel the need to either shop or go on Facebook or Instagram. So these are fast impulses that are over time deeply ingrained. Many bad habits or routines that we want to address originate in developmental years of life. Um, behaviors like avoidance coping, uh, avoiding difficult conversations, denying or lying to get ourselves out of uh, situations where we might experience some uh, conflict with caregivers or um, 
uh, all the other uh, ingrained uh, survival strategies. Um, they started out as survival tools to diminish the stresses of interpersonal life and family systems and with peers. I remember being six or seven years old and being introduced to peers and immediately feeling the need to talk about things that I thought would make me seem cool. And over time, it became impossible not to just start nervously talking as a way to uh, get attention in uh, those years. Over thousands of repetitions, these behaviors become redundantly wired, which means overwired. There's many, many, many neural circuits that support them, and thus they become extremely difficult to what's called extinguish these behaviors. By adulthood, um, emotionally driven behaviors, we could call them, which are just another word for habits, routines, compulsions, and addictions are all emotionally driven behaviors. They're so hardwired that trying to overcome the impulse to eat a donut uh, when we start to feel our blood sugar drop a little bit or our energy levels drop can seem almost impossible or eating a donut as a reward for feeling just worn down by a job. Um, this is why, by the way, when people say to someone, just stop doing that, smoking, drinking, uh, binge eating, it doesn't help in any way, because almost invariably, by the time we're adults, ingrained routines, behaviors, emotionally driven impulses are so powerful, are so uh, redundantly wired um, that, and so uh, they've hijacked the dopamine reward system and so preconscious activated immediately that people can sometimes just find themselves actually eating or turning on the TV or drinking or smoking before they even become aware of it. Or they might suddenly find themselves on their phone scrolling Instagram or whatever, even though they've set some form of intention not to do so. It doesn't mean they're weak-willed. It simply means that the circuits uh, that support ingrained routines are far more powerful than consciousness which happens later and is not as wired to produce dopamine so uh, trying to and additionally trying to extinguish habits activates key regions of the midbrain the amygdala the hypothalamus the nucleus accumbens which are the stress circuits in the brain so if you try to stop doing something it actually produces enormous amounts of physiological stress in the form of somatic markers, restless attentional states, and intrusive repetitive ideations. We'll start thinking that something really bad is going to happen unless we engage in it. This is very much also the circuits that are involved in obsessive compulsive disorder. And <clears throat> one of the things about OCD is it's kind of strange that we only die, we, we kind of limit the diagnosis of it to a small percentage of the world, which is kind of uh, 
a joke in the sense that pretty much all human beings to some degree in some way have some behavior or some concern that creates repetitive ideations, triggers a felt need to engage in a behavior, and that if we don't do it, it triggers enormous amount of stress. So it's to some degree, all human beings have in various areas, some, we're all on the spectrum of having OCD. That's a long-winded way of saying that. So, uh, Alcoholics, let's look at an example. Alcoholics, I like using alcoholics because I'm in long-term recovery, 27 years of sobriety, but I know alcoholics well. And uh, so I'm going to use alcoholism uh, right now as an example. Drink, when any imminent encounter promises to be rife with conflicts or after difficult interpersonal events, of course. And why do they drink? Uh, well, because almost all alcoholics have early attachment disturbances, which meant one or both caregivers was not very good at soothing or appreciation or availability, or was not very reliable, in other world, words. So um, we uh, use alcohol as a way to soothe ourselves rather than turn to other people and say, hey, I'm nervous about this upcoming meeting, or I feel a degree of shame about something I did. The alcoholic won't trust other people. They, view, they emotionally view other people as not safe in some way. So they'll drink instead as a way to regulate their emotions. And Problem is, of course, in one way, over time, alcohol leads to disinhibition, which means the more drunk people become, the more they say embarrassing things or do embarrassing things, which creates a greater degree of shame. And the more shame they feel, the more alcohol they need to alleviate the shame, which creates this vicious cycle. The shame creates drinking, the drinking creates embarrassing actions, which creates more shame, which leads to more drinking. Now, you'd think that given this horrible state of affairs that alcoholics would simply realize and say, I'm going to stop doing that. But here's where the problem really becomes overwhelming. When the alcoholic tries to stop cons uh, drinking, the shame of all the past act activations is felt without any soothing qualities of alcohol. So the shame becomes intense, along with extreme dread of social life, along with attentional re restlessness, because alcohol is loaded with GABA. When you take away the GABA, suddenly you have a mind that's jumping all over the place and lots of physiological discomfort. So it's even worse when they try to stop drinking than it is when they're drinking in many ways until they get a lot of support. So how do we break out of these deeply ingrained behaviors? Well, here's where we're going to be exploring a lot of um, tools from the Dharma tonight, from the early uh, teachings of the Buddha. So the first tool that the Buddha, and the Buddha really was an endless fount of wisdom as to tools and, and ways of addressing 
addictions because much of his teaching uh, essentially uh, focused on craving and uh, compulsive behaviors. So the Dharma, the first tool is mindfulness of feelings as they arise and pass. As I noted, um, the behavioral impulses that motivate uh, routines and habits and compulsions and addictions are very fast. They're largely felt in the body as uh, action potential and urges to uh, initiate a behavior. But as the Buddha noted, if we can pay attention to the physiological state that's impelling us to reach for the cookies or reach for the alcohol or reach for the cigarettes or reach for the 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 phone or reach for the uh i don't know they go online to amazon or whatever if we can before we do that pay attention to the impulses themselves and create a container for them where we instead of allow the impulses to force us into the action we take a moment and we just try to soften through breathing and through relaxing the belly and so forth uh, uh, extended exhalations if we can address directly the feelings beneath the uh, compulsion uh, the buddha taught that that's the weakest link in the chain that by the t if we don't pay attention to the feelings, it's very, very difficult because the attention to stressors in the world plus the impulses to act become overwhelming. If we remove our attention from the world for a moment and uh, uh, pay attention to the feelings in the body that are urging us to do something, then it becomes easier to be with the impulses rather than giving into the impulses. Let me give you an example. A uh, great Buddhist teacher, Ajahn Sumedho, uh, he uh, was giving a talk and during the talk, um, a, a practitioner asked him, she said basically every day before she came into work, this job was something that she had, that she did, uh she needed to keep her job but it was a very kind of uh enervating not very inspiring job and so to lift her up every day before she'd go into work she'd buy a donut and she didn't she wanted to stop doing that and she asked tomato if the best thing to do would be to walk to work in such a way that she didn't pass the donut shop now, that, of course, is one way. Uh, reducing the triggers of a behavior is one way to address addictions. But Sumedho said a better way would be to simply, as she passed by the donut shop and felt that first inclination to go in, to stand there and remove her attention from the, the donuts in the window and just bring attention to what was going on in her body and just pay attention to the, the rumblings in the stomach, the tension in the shoulders and in the chest, the, the leaning forward into the experience. And he said, if you could just learn to pause and put five seconds or 10 seconds into observing it 
and then go in and buy the donut. And then the next day you put 20 seconds of a pause where you just learn to soothe the uh, impulses a little bit. And then the next day, the day after that, 30 seconds or then a minute. And then over time, you said mindful with through mindfulness, the impulse to go in could be lived with rather than be too overwhelming. Now that's one strategy. The problem, of course, with uh, that approach is that most of us are wholly unaware of the feelings that are going on in our body. We're so lost in our thoughts and overwhelmed by external stressors that asking people to stop in front of a donut store and pay attention to the internal states of the body might be asking people to do something that's not within their uh, behavioral vocabulary. So there are other practices the Buddha recommended as well. Um, one practice, he said, is to simply see clearly the suffering that results um, over, the, over time due to our, uh, our compulsions, due to our bad, our maladaptive habits or our um, addictions. So this clear seeing was a way to emotionally link an action such as drinking or smoking or gambling or uh, whatever, and just see that rather the seeing the, in, the relief that it offers in the short term, because let's face it, shopping generally releases dopamine in the short term. And like all addictions, release dopamine, but dopamine only has a very short synaptic presence. And then once again, in the long term, the stress is there, but an even greater stress, because now there's a degree of shame that we've given in to our addictions and compulsions. So the Buddha said that rather than um, uh, uh, you know, that the approach was to see clearly the shame, the discomfort, the negative feelings, the disappointment that we experience after we give in to uh, uh, an ingrained behavior and link it in our minds clearly with the behavior itself. Not any sense of our, there's nothing wrong with us, there's nothing wrong with other people. It's just the, this behavior create suffering and link the two in an incontrovertible way. So for example, um, a sex addict who constantly feels lonely and therefore goes out and hooks up through Tinder with one partner after another partner after another partner as a way to try to alleviate their loneliness. And of course, in the excitement, the dopamine release of the, the encounter and the initial, the, the sexual activity, for a little while, the loneliness goes away. But then when they leave and there's no real attachment or bond that's been established, the loneliness is even greater. The shame is, might be even greater. Now, such an individual might get caught up in the blame-shame spiral. Blame would be uh, 
why are these people always not wanting to have more of a relationship with me? What's the matter with them? The shame spiral would be something's the matter with me. I'm unlovable. There's something wrong with me. That's why no one wants to be in a relationship with me or whatever. But the clear seeing would be, oh, um, uh, it's not the fault of the other people. It's not the, there's nothing wrong with my core self. The problem is the, the behavior of continuously looking for love and attachment in fast uh, sex with people we don't know very well. And so when we link the behavior with a sense of suffering and we see that clearly, it becomes a way to cut through the, 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 ten, the, the false conceptions that keep us using blame or shame. And it just says, oh, this is suffering. It's interesting that uh, in throughout the Buddhist teaching, seeing suffering is the instigation of growth. Uh, as the saying goes, pain is the touchstone of growth. The Buddha saw that all growth and change is motivated by truly seeing suffering as it is, not as a cause of by of ourself, not as a cause so much of other people, but as the reaction to or the result of actions. And so, as the Buddha told his son, uh, never blame yourself, always look for the actions that are causing your suffering. In the Four Noble Truths, the Buddha said that in seeing the First Noble Truth, that in life there's suffering, and seeing that in the Second Noble Truth, that our addictions and compulsions create even greater suffering, and seeing all that suffering, the Third Noble Truth, which is release, is possible. We finally see, oh, this is not bringing me any relief. This is bringing me suffering. Now, of course, the weakness with this strategy is that many people don't want to look at suffering very deeply. They constantly turn away or they constantly blame themselves and believe that there's something wrong with me. It's not, they don't reach the cognitive milestone of seeing it's not their core self or their identity that's at fault. It's just an ingrained early survival strategy that over time has turned into a maladaptive compulsion. So the final teaching I'm going to go over, there's many more in the Dharma, but Yatha Bhuta Nana Dasana, which is uh, a wonderful strategy of seeing clearly. The Buddha said that because all bad habits and addictions and compulsions initially provide some relief, the dopamine surge of gambling or shopping or sex or social media all produce this dopamine, which for a short term alleviates whatever stress we're under. The Buddha said that they, we should not pretend that these habits, these routines, these behaviors are just things that have just arisen on their own, we have to first acknowledge what they bring us. 
what relief they're bringing. The second part is to change a bad habit or a compulsion. We have to replace it with a new routine that provides a similar benefit, but doesn't have the drawbacks of our bad habits. Let me give you some examples. And again, the key in Yatha Bhutta Nana Dasana is first to see the uh, allure, as it were, the asada in early Buddhism, the allure, why we do it, what relief it's bringing. Two, to see the drawbacks, acknowledge the suffering that certain behaviors or, or cognitive uh, ideations have. And then three, to figure out what would bring us relief without the drawbacks. So let's look at some examples. Catastrophizing. Catastrophizing is a form of uh, anxiety. It's essentially uh, in certain situations in life, figuring out everything that could go wrong <laughs> or fixating on an unlikely uh, outcome that would be absolutely horrifying, but literally not being able to see how unlikely it is. Um, uh, uh, sometimes I, uh, I, I would have uh, uh, catastrophizing uh, as a, a kid with uh, money, even if I was in a job uh, and I could pay my rent, I would still have this catastrophizing. What if I uh, took a vacation, then they would decide that I wasn't any good at my job, and then they'd fire me, and then I'd wind up homeless on the street, and then I'd be killed, or I'd die. So I just created this chain of unlikely outcomes. But so what's the allure of that? Right? What? Why do? Why do we do catastrophizing? Why do we think of the most unlikely, horrific outcome that might happen in situations? Well, the allure is that if I envision everything that could go wrong, then uh, I'll feel prepared. I'll feel safe because I've figured out what could go wrong, and therefore that gives me the sense that oh, okay. I know that if I take a vacation from work, I might get fired and therefore I won't take it quite yet. Uh, or I won't, if I do take it, then at least I'll be aware that I might be fired if I come back. Who knows? You know, but it, it makes me feel prepared. So that's the allure. Now, what's the drawback of catastrophizing? The drawback is in the most troubling events in life are never anticipated, and therefore catastrophizing keeps us in a hypervigilant, chronic state of repetitive ideations that cause an enormous amount of stress and actually don't prepare us for anything. They, the, the allure is that we think we're prepared, but the drawback is that we are actually not, and that all catastrophizing does is keep us in a state of chronic threat detection. So what's the way out? Well, we might develop far stronger affiliations, bonds, friendships, community in our life, so that even if we did get fired, which is extremely unlikely, 
all of the support we had will produce a lot of serotonin, which will make us feel safer, or we could rely on other people to help get the world out and we would find another job, or we won't walk around feeling as unprepared. So relying, visualizing, connecting with more people, sharing about the catastrophizing produces a greater relief to our vulnerability than chronically worrying. Let's give another example. Uh, comparing ourselves with others, probably the single greatest miracle growth of suffering ever conceived, uh, which means to sit around and compare how much we've achieved in our life with other people. Guess what? Almost invariably, we select other people who are somehow making more money or who on Facebook or Instagram have shown pictures of themselves at wonderful parties or on beaches or in the Hamptons or who are traveling to exotic locations. It seems like we never or very rarely contrast ourselves with people who are doing just the same as we are relatively. So, but comparing ourselves with others, what's the allure? Well, the allure is that uh, it, we believe that it'll instigate uh, urges to improve, to do more work, to try harder, to, it'll be motivational in other words, that somehow comparing our life with others in somehow will be inspiring or uh, make us uh, become aware of all the things that we haven't achieved that are worthwhile. Whew. What's the drawback? Well, in fact, um, self-reflective ideations are uh, they trigger the default mode operation of the brain, which means we become flooded with ideations uh, that are despairing. The ideations become repetitive. Default mode network activates the amygdala. Pretty soon now we're stressed out and uncomfortable. So rather than being inspiring and motivational, seeing how well other people are doing and comparing ourselves with them actually makes us feel worse. It never makes us feel better. So that's a big drawback, right? And then what's the escape? So instead of comparing ourselves with others, if we wanted to uh, motivate ourselves, what would happen if we reflected on all of the esteemable acts or creative endeavors we've been involved with and feel in ourselves the rewards, the good feelings that those endeavors generated in us. Maybe bring to mind actions of generosity and kindness. And then when we think of those things, guess what? Because the anterior cingulate cortex is involved and it upregulates both serotonin and GABA and endorphins, we start feeling better. And when we start feeling better, we say, aha, doing acts of kindness or generosity or being creative or learning a new skill makes me feel really good. Well, that's even more inspiring and motivational than comparing ourselves with other people. So the key here is to choose a substitute for a bad habit. Plan how we respond to loneliness or boredom rather than binge eating or watching TV. What will we do? Will we take a walk outside and connect with nature? Will we 
visualize people that care about us? Will we go and hang out with uh, and watch dogs in the uh, dog uh, area of the park or <laughs> the dog area, the dog run? I don't know what I'm talking about. Anyway, we'll think of a replacement behavior, plan ahead, know what, be ready with an alternative behavior. Don't wait until boredom, loneliness, anxiety, uh, depression, or whatever arises, have a plan in place. Put it on post-its, memorize it, be accountable, talk to other people who are facing the same issues and say aloud to them. Nobody likes to disappoint people. So we say aloud to them, my plan tonight when I start to feel lonely is not to go for the ice cream. My plan is to um, uh, go outside and just walk around the neighborhood and just see other people. Or my plan is to call up someone I haven't reached out to in a very long time. So it is worthwhile to know triggers and to try to limit them as much as possible. For example, if family gatherings are stressful, bring someone with you to them, or for heaven's sake, minimize the time you'll be at them. Don't let peer pressure or um, expectations or a sense of pride push you into doing something that will trigger a habitual routine or a compulsion. It will only make you feel worse. There's no, there's nothing that of benefit that comes in trying to stay in a triggering situation for longer than we can easily endure. So cutting back on triggers is very healthy. And the Buddha and the Sabasava talked about how important that is. Finally, uh, two last notes. Uh, the it's been noted in countless clinical studies that those who maintain visual images of the eventual rewards for developing new behaviors are more likely to change behaviors that, than people who don't envision the long-term rewards. If we only think about the short-term rewards or the short-term situation, then we'll give in to a compulsion. But if we really visualize all the things we could do uh, with the money we spent smoking and, and the, all, how healthy we could become and how, how nice it would be to say we finally overcame that habit after so many years of suffering, that is an enormous uh, tool in that it too can trigger dopamine, but dopamine to change, not stay in the same behavior. And lastly, the Buddha noted that all change requires what he called sada or conviction or sense of faith. It's not faith in a higher power or God. It's simply faith that doing the right thing, while it initially won't pay off with any sense of relief, but over time, it will work. So, for example, the the person who um, 
is the sex addict rather than going on tinder and habitually scrolling and hooking up or just constantly making connections with more and more people that are not really emotionally available for a relationship they might instead spend the time going to uh, an SLAA meeting, or they might spend time going uh, out on dates where there's no possibility of having sex. And at first, it won't alleviate the loneliness or the stress, there won't be as much of a dopamine reward. So we have to have faith that even though it takes a long time to alleviate the impulses that encourage us to fulfill, to act out on an impulse over time, they always go away if we keep using the substitute behavior. So that's it. That's my talk. I hope there was something in there worth listening to or worth reflecting on. And now we're going to actually put these tools in practice. I never let uh, talk go without actually uh, having a meditation following where we actually get to practice the tools so we learn how to do them. That's the whole point of the meditation part of tonight's talk. So find your most comfortable seated position. Don't try to meditate. Just try to relax and just all the effort just goes into just keeping yourself awake. That could be by just count, count, putting a little effort into uh, just uh, keep awareness on the breath or we're going to practice some other uh, tools to keep us awake, but make yourself as comfortable as you can find the most uh, relaxing position and whatever you think meditation is don't do that just right now focus on uh, ease and comfort and yeah settling in just Closing the eyes and bringing your attention to some sensation that's present that's really soothing. So it could be the sound of uh, some sounds in your environment that are pleasant. It could be, for example, um, Sounds of people talking in the distance, or cars, or traffic, or a fan, or uh, some ongoing sound that's soothing, or it could be some sensation in your body that feels pleasant. Sometimes the hands or the uh, feet. It could be a pleasant image you want to hold in your mind, a place where you feel very safe or a, a person that you associate with kindness, uh, 
acceptance, appreciation, someone who's reliable. So keep trying to keep in mind all of the pleasant stimuli and mental content that's pleasant and just relax back and open and just be with whatever feels good. If something feels bad, like a chronic pain or a irritating uh, sensation, something's itching or uh, a leg goes numb or whatever. Uh, If you can immediately alleviate that, do that. But if you can't, just allow it to be there. But always keep in mind that which is reliably present. So soothing sensations in the body, soothing images, maybe a soothing phrase, may I be happy, peaceful, and at ease. May all beings be happy, peaceful, and at ease. Yeah, and just... uh, Every time we relax, try to keep the mind open and spacious and filled with these pleasant sensations. The Buddha taught that suffering almost invariably involves the mind contracting around a repetitive thought that's unpleasant or some external stimuli in the world that we're craving after or we don't like. So we, in our practice, want to keep opening up the mind, relaxing back, and just let all that is present be present. Don't resist anything. Keep the mind open, very spacious feeling, if you want, all the tense muscles that are in the neck or shoulders or belly and just take a moment to relax them and keep still all the pleasant sensations and images and phrases and sounds and awareness to open spacious awareness
the Buddha taught as well that if the mind is as contracted and small as a cup of water, then adding a full teaspoon of salt can make the water in that cup undrinkable. But if the mind is as vast and spacious as a lake, then a teaspoon of salt doesn't make any difference to the drinkability of the water. That's a metaphor. The salt is a metaphor for a negative thought or memory or pain in the body. If we keep the mind open and spacious, then any stress that's present becomes far more endurable. And if you start to feel drowsy, just keep putting effort into bringing in all the sensations and sounds and stimuli available so that you keep the mind open and spacious, but you're really in contact with all the all that is present. You're not drifting away from it.
you're right there with this moment, you're present. But because the mind is so open, spacious, the present is not. unpleasant, or at least it's far less difficult than it was previously. So now let's try some of the practices of addressing uh, compulsive routines, habits, so forth. Bring to mind some ingrained emotional behavior that we find ourselves continuously repeating even though it is not no longer in our interest, no longer really rewarding. Whatever that a- action or behavior is, just hold the image of you doing it in mind not the word, or if you do just a single word that represents 
that habit, hold it in mind. Addictively checking the phone, just hold an image of yourself constantly on that screen or whatever else. Hold it in mind. And then after you've burned that image in for about 10 or 15 seconds, immediately go to what the uh, the shame or suffering or something that results, a feeling of deflation, the feeling of loneliness, the feeling of hopelessness, and just visualize an image of yourself experiencing that disappointment. that resigned sense of falling back into something that doesn't make us happy. Just hold that image of yourself and then go back and forth between the image of the behavior, the phone, the Amazon, the, the food, the uh, cigarettes, and then the image of the, an image that represents your distress or unhappiness that results from it, and just keep going back and forth, linking the two together. None of this is your fault. We're just linking the action with the result back and forth. There's no longer any question, this act makes me feel worse. So let's put that aside. And now what I'd like you to do is to visualize a situation where we generally engage in that addiction or compulsion we just used, a situation where we find ourselves compulsively acting out on some impulse and just ask ourselves, what would be a better solution when I'm feeling lonely or stressed or uninspired? What is my replacement behavior? Right now, it doesn't have to be perfect. Just think of something that you know you'd feel better doing in the long term. Images of connecting, 
images of being creative, images of being in nature, images of uh, doing something like yoga or something that's soothing. Any behavior that, while it wouldn't be as immediately pleasant in the long term, we would feel so much better, a sense of agency in our life. And now what I'd like you to do is visualize a situation where we're triggered to an old behavior and visualize us instead engaging in the replacement behavior, the escape, the way out. Just repeat that image, yourself coming home, maybe, feeling tired, lonely, unmotivated, stressed out from work. Feel the impulse to do something that doesn't suit us. Visualize ourselves with the replacement. And now jump ahead a year from now where you no longer act out on this compulsion or very rarely do. It's now in your past. Visualize an image of yourself feeling proud, a sense of esteem, a sense of that you're capable of change. Visualize a rewarding image. And then we're going to link the image of our acting in the skillful way with this rewarding long-term result. Back and forth. Here's me. calling up an old friend rather than turning on the television all night long. And here's me in the future feeling far more connected in my life. So in a moment, I'm going to ring the bowl. I hope that was a worthwhile practice. And <clears throat> when you hear the sound, take your time. No rush to return to awareness or looking at the screen. Take as long as you need. <clears throat> 